over the next three afternoons, we will be giving talks building on the theme of refuge that we began with uh, last evening. And we'll be talking about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So today I'll be talking about taking refuge in Buddha. And tomorrow Andrea will be talking about refuge in Dharma. And on the last day, all three of us together will be speaking to refuge in Sangha. I'll say a little bit, a bit more about what those uh, words mean, but I want to um, <laughs> start with a story. When I was uh, young, uh, new to practice, a Zen student. I lived some years in a Zen monastery and uh, the meals that we ate in the context of Zen practice were in the meditation hall in a formal cere ceremony called Oriyoki. It's a Japanese word and it is a term that um, sort of meals are a little bit done like a tea ceremony. So it's very a lot of ritual. It's very beautiful and l very precise. Every movement is very precise. And as part of that meal ritual, we did a chant before the food was served. And as part of the chant, which I don't think I can remember the exact words that we use, but there was a, a mention of uh, gratitude, offering our gratitude and appreciation as the meal came for the three treasures. And uh, for many months, I would do this chant and I didn't know what the three treasures were. And uh, one day, one of the teachers gave a talk like I'm giving today. And in the talk, he described that the three treasures or what sometimes referred to as the triple treasure or the three jewels are the Buddha, the historical Buddha, a person who woke up 2,600 years ago, and that seed of potential for awakening that sits in each of us. And we take refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma is uh, often referred to as the teachings of the Buddha, the various things that he offered after his awakening as an expression to help the rest of us along our path to find a sense of freedom and peace, to share what he had learned. The Dharma, in a broader way, also is sometimes described to simply mean truth. And Sangha traditionally is understood to be the community 
it's called the fourfold sangha, the fourfold sangha of uh, priests, uh, sorry, monks and nuns, so monastics, and lay people, lay men and women living in the world. And that made up the fourfold community. But in a much broader sense, we can understand community as all of us, as a very myriad beings who arrive here to learn, to uh, not just learn academically, but to practice as we are uh, embodying, digesting, metabolizing, bringing alive these teachings that have been passed down for 2,600 years. So this description was given from the speaker when I was a student, and um, he was describing, this is the definition of the three treasures. And um, there was a woman sitting next to me who uh, leaned over during the talk. I'm not recommending you do this with each other, but she leaned over and she whispered to me, I thought the triple treasure all this time, I thought it was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> because of course, we were chanting our thanks to the triple treasure with each meal. <laughs> so you can uh, see there's quite a, a variance, a variety of understanding what the triple treasure is. So with that, uh, important to bring some humor, yeah? as we hit the sort of long afternoon into evening of the first day of retreat, which maybe for some of you has just been like totally blissful, but maybe not, right? We often arrive, I sometimes think that we're moving really, really fast in our life and then we, we stop. And when we stop, like a car stopping very fast, often there's kind of a shimmy and a shimmy may show up in your body as physical discomfort or fatigue or restlessness. It may show up in your mind as agitation, obsessive thinking, judgment. It may show up in your heart as sadness or irritation or boredom or just Something like, what was I thinking? Right? If that's not the case for you, uh, please don't worry. And if it is, if any of that has touched some piece of what's been true for you in this time, just know that uh, there's not a problem. This is all right on track. It's... Um, not an easy thing being human. And our practice is very much in a very simple way. And as I've been saying, simple but not so easy, just sitting down right in the middle of this. <laughs> I think the technical word for this is um, weird. This weird phenomena of being who we are. 
and being willing for this period of time to be present, to be mindful, to stay as awake as we can to the whole of all of it. So there's a story about the Buddha who we are taking refuge in after he woke up. And the story is that he was walking along the road, maybe more like gliding down the road, looking very radiant and peaceful and content. He had a kind of glow about him. And uh, someone saw him and said, I'm paraphrasing here. It does not say this in the original Pali. Whoa, you look amazing. Like, what's up, dude? Right? They didn't say that. But you get the idea. So they were, whoever saw him was impressed by his beauty. His sort of, he was a beautiful being, apparently, according to the stories, physically. But this was more of an inner glow, an inner radiance that he was exuding. And it was enough to catch someone's attention. And they said, are you some kind of a god or a deva or a celestial being? Like what planet are you from? Right? And the Buddha responded, no, I'm not a god. I'm not a deva. I'm not some kind of celestial being. And they said, well, what are you? And he said, I am awake. So when we take refuge in Buddha, we are taking refuge in this possibility, this potential for awakening here. Because the Buddha, as the story suggests, was not a god or a deva. He didn't live in some alternate ethereal realm. The Buddha was a human being just like us. He was a human being who uh, grew up with some privilege. He was the king's or the head clansman's son. So he had a lot of comfort as a young man. But some of the stories also describe that he was uh, moody. He was a very sensitive young person, and he was deeply touched by suffering that he saw around him in humans, in animals, in the world. And he was expected to take over as the next ruler, and he chose instead to go leave his home and go out on a spiritual journey to try to understand uh, why do we suffer? What is this phenomena of suffering for us as human beings? And is it possible to be free? And so we are taking refuge in this possibility of freedom, but we're also taking refuge in the courage the tenacity, the grit that it takes to walk the path, to engage in this kind of exploration. 
and just so I'm perfectly clear about this, I'm not talking about the person sitting next to you or behind you. I'm talking about you. This is each of us and you're here and you can rest into, as we have been speaking about, relax into this fundamental goodness, this curiosity, this wish, nascent or fully on fire in you that had you land here. So what, what does it mean to wake up? What, what is awakening? Awakening in many ways is the, the premise and the promise of the Buddhist path. And yet we don't usually talk about it very much, at least in my growing up in the Buddhist tradition in the last 30 years, it's a little hush hush, you know, like we don't really talk about that. One of the ways that it is often talked about is as an absence. Those we talk about what it's not or what it's an absence from. So a very simple way of describing what awakening looks like is the absence of what are called the three poisons. You'll see as I go through the talk, pretty much everything good in Buddhism comes in threes, right? So we have the triple treasure. We have the three poisons. The three poisons are greed, hatred, and delusion. Wanting, not wanting, and being confused. So let's start by talking about what awakening is not. Why would we do that? Well, because I think many of us carry, certainly true for me, uh, confusion. We carry some kind of ideas or beliefs, whether they're conscious or unconscious, clear or vague, about what we imagine awakening is, what we imagine it means to be enlightened, to be free, to find a sense of peace. A lot of our fantasy about awakening sort of falls in the category of what uh, Chogyam Trungpa, a great Tibetan teacher who came to the West in the 60s, would perhaps refer to as a kind of spiritual materialism. We live in a materialistic culture in which enlightenment, awakening, freedom can be another thing that I'm going to get. Right? I have an old colleague who used to call this <clears throat> fantasy in a kind of playful way. We have this idea that whatever it is, fill in the blank, we're talking about awakening or freedom or enlightenment here, is uh, what he used to describe as the island where it all works out. So we carry around with us some notion that there is a something. It may be different for different ones of us, right? But it's the if only mind. If only I 
So maybe not on retreat, but in the world, we're familiar with this if only mind, right? If only I had the right job. If only I had the right partner. If only I had the right body. If only I had the right shoes. <laughs> then I'd be happy. If only I get what I want, I will be happy. If only I could get away from what I don't want, then I would be happy. This is not the happiness that the Buddha was pointing to or promising. He described what, he'd, what he would say as a kind of true happiness. And a true happiness is a happiness beyond conditions. Beyond conditions means you get what you want and you're still happy, even when it goes away. You don't get what you want and you're still happy. So you can see that what I mean by happy doesn't mean yay, kind of happy. But there's a deep stability, contentment, freedom, right in the middle of the onslaught <laughs> of what we describe in Buddhist psychology as uh, Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. Vedana is the understanding that every moment of experience has one of three flavors. It is pleasant, it is unpleasant, or it's what's called neither pleasant or unpleasant. It's neutral. So the neither pleasant or unpleasant is, in my experience, what most of us refer to as boring. And we miss a lot of neutral experience. We just kind of skip right over it. Like, huh? Because we're looking for that next exciting thing. And the next exciting thing is exciting either because we like it, yeah, or we don't. But in either, in either side, it has a lot of charge to it. And that charge creates a kind of reactivity in us. So if we like it, what do we do? I like it. I go toward it. I grab onto it. I want more of it. I try to hold it. It's miserable to do that. It's not miserable to have pleasant experience. That's fine. But when we grab on and try to keep it, the happiness goes. Now, what happens when there's unpleasant experience? Anybody here today have any unpleasant experience? Just a little show of hands. If you didn't, it's okay. It's coming soon. Right? <laughs> this is the nature of how it works. 24-7, pleasant and unpleasant, pleasant and unpleasant. If it's pleasant, it doesn't mean you're doing it right. If it's unpleasant, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. This is being with things as they are. This is how it is. And can we find a way to not be constantly batted around, right? By the flavors of our experience. This doesn't mean to go into some kind of neutral passivity. It actually means to be wide awake, to notice the pleasant and the unpleasant, to even notice the tendency or the full grasping and not grasping, and to pay attention to see how that goes. Because you know what it's like, this strategy of trying to get what you want? 
and trying to get away from what we don't want? And if we're honest, isn't that a lot of what we're up to? <laughs> Even if we haven't thought about it? Well, we know where that strategy takes us. There's no island, my friends, where it all works out. It's not how it works. Where that strategy takes us is not to freedom. It's not to contentment. It's not to true or real happiness. It is to being totally worn out. It's exhausting. Getting and not getting, wanting and not wanting, grasping and pushing away. And then we wonder why we're so tired. Right? So this place, this place of refuge that we come to on a retreat is a place where we can put that down. Doesn't mean it will go away. But it means when something pleasant arises, you can go, oh, so nice, pleasant, that's enough. And when something unpleasant arises, which it will, whether it's a mental unpleasant or a physical unpleasant or an emotional unpleasant, to remember it's not your fault, it's just how it goes. And just your job is just not to make it worse, right? You don't have to pile on. This unpleasant thing is happening. It must be my fault. If it's not my fault, it must be her fault. Would it? <laughs> it's a beautiful teaching that the Buddha gives about the, it's called the second arrow. He says, if someone gets struck with an arrow, this is unpleasant experience, right? Then he's asking his, his monks. So if, some, if a man gets struck in the arm by an arrow and then he takes a second arrow and he sticks it in his arm. Is that helpful? The monks are pretty sharp, so they're like, mm -mm. <laughs> it's not. And he said, yeah, it's just like this. When we have an unpleasant experience and then we pile on on top of it, that's like adding a second arrow or a third arrow or a fourth arrow. Why is this happening to me? It shouldn't be this way. That's the basic tone of those arrows. You don't have to like all of your experience, but you don't need to add more arrows. What's it like to be with? Can you be present with all of it? What the Buddha is pointing to and what taking refuge in Buddha means is that there is this possibility of peace right at the center. You don't have to go away. Oh, hello. Somebody left a note. Why do we bow to Buddhist statues? This Buddha here uh, is not awake. This Buddha is just a piece of stone. We bow to the Buddhist statue because we are using it as a symbol to remember something in us. So I hope that at the end of the retreat, none of you look like this, more stiff, you know, and rigid, but that actually you find some of that peace. You can find a place to sit right in the middle of all of it. Because right in the middle of every moment, there is peace. This is ours to discover.
So uh, awakening is not uh, the island where it all works out, 24-7 pleasant experience. It also isn't like I wake up, this is another version of the same mind, and now everything's easy. No more problems. There's another story about the Buddha that sort of parallels the opening story, and this is about the Buddha and the wanderer Upaka, U-P-A-K-A-H. And similar to the first story, Upaka sees the newly enlightened Buddha strolling along, and uh, he too is impressed by his golden glow, his beauty, his radiance. And he says, who are you? And he says, and who is your teacher? Because this wanderer, Upaka, thinks, whoever this guy studied with, I want to go there. Right? And at the time that the Buddha uh, was alive, that's part of what was happening in northern India. There were many, many teachers and there were many wanderers who went traveling around the countryside from one teacher to the next, trying to find their way, trying to discover some slice of truth and freedom. So he says, who are you and who is your teacher? This is what the newly awakened Buddha says. <laughs> I have no teacher. I am fully self-enlightened. In fact, I am the only fully enlightened, fully self-enlightened person in the entire world. There is no one more awakened than me. I alone am fully awake. Do you know what happened with Upaka? He said, um, good for you, friend. And then he slinked off down a side path. I find this story very encouraging because, in a sense, what he's saying may be true, but it didn't go over very well with his audience, right? The guy who received it was like, whoa, what is wrong with this guy, right? Like, see you later, buddy. Good for you, friend. He may have had a little bit of an ironic tone there, right? As a teacher, I find this particularly encouraging, right? That even after he woke up, the Buddha's first attempt to talk about his experience kind of flopped. This tells us something important about awakening, what it is and what it isn't. It doesn't mean you are now mistake free. What it means is that you get to be yourself you can make all the mistakes you want. And awakening is a process of ongoing learning. Because the Buddha didn't stop there. He taught for 40 some years. And as he continued to try to express himself and to share what he had understood, he became more and more skillful. This is a uh, an important lesson for us to understand about awakening is that it invites us into an ongoing process of learning, of continuously uh, becoming more and more of ourselves. 
in a way that we can make real contact, that we can meet, that we can be helpful, that we can <clears throat> inspire the people around us. There's a less, lesser known teaching uh, about the Buddha's awakening that uh, for me is a beautiful description of this. Uh, it's called the three watches of the night. And the three watches of the night describe three elements or dimensions of what the Buddha saw, what he woke up to, what he realized in his awakening. And I think we could take the three watches of the night as a kind of um, mythic uh, time shrinking. You know how they do that in myths? You know, there's somebody here and then they travel overnight and they end up on the other side of the world. So time and space shrink in myth. So this idea of three watches of the night for most of us in regular human terms, we could think of as an ongoing process, maybe three weeks, maybe three years, maybe three lifetimes. The point is that as we live, we have this opportunity to continuously awaken. So in the first watch of the night, the first glimmer of awakening, the Buddha sees, I'll read you the language because it's quite beautiful. He says, when the mind was concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and had attained imperturbability. Don't worry if that hasn't happened for you yet. So it just means that his mind had gotten nice and settled and quiet. And the instructions that we've offered so far about staying with the body and breath, this is just uh, kind of helpful. It's meant as a helpful way to allow each of you, each of us, to begin to steady like that. It may not have happened yet. Again, don't worry, you have lots of time, like at least one lifetime, maybe more. Anyway, after he began to settle a bit, his mind began to still. He said, I looked back over all of my many, many lifetimes. You can believe in past lifetimes if you want or not. But this may happen for some of you that you may have some of your past bubble up and come forward. And he saw as he looked infinite, repeated experiences of pleasure and pain, of positive and, unpo uh, positive and negative, of I like it and I don't experience. He saw that repeated again and again. And in the second watch of the night, so he saw how this works, how this grasping after pleasant and pushing away unpleasant is What's that word thing from Star Wars, uh, from Star Trek? It's futile. Resistance is futile. This is a futile strategy because it goes on and on. 
And in the second watch of the night, he sees how this same collected mind, he says, I directed that mind to the passing away and reappearing of all beings. So first he sees this truth for himself, and then he sees it for everyone, everywhere. I like to think of this as the first is a kind of insight, and in the second, he feels his heart open and extend. He sees that the same suffering that is true for him is true for everyone, that the heart of compassion begins to open. And in the third watch of the night, he sees how a moment arises. So he gets really concentrated and he can see how that moment of unpleasant, not wanting, grasping, becoming, etc., unfolds. There's a lot of fancy uh, Buddhist terminology for this. But he basically sees not uh, over time, but in a moment, how that process works. And I, I, I'm saying this because we can see that too. Remember, we, like the Buddha, here, sitting, paying attention. You have the opportunity to see how suffering arises. And, as in the case of the Buddha, if you can see clearly how it happens, you can begin to see clearly how it can unhappen. How you can let it go. How you can not get yanked around all the time habitually, reactively, moment by moment. And this whole process, as is described in this kind of mythic description, is something that isn't once and done. It happens over time. It unfolds. So some of us carry an image or a, a, a fantasy that I did for a long time, that enlightenment would come like a thunderbolt, and then all my problems would go away. Everything would be easy. And this story for me was a helpful corrective to that. Like, oh, I see. Maybe I wake up a little bit at first. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. But there's more like that. So as we wake up, it's described sometimes that we are waking up to see things as they are. Or as the... Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi, who wrote uh, Zen Mind, Beginnings of Mind, used to describe it. We see things as they is. We begin to see the non-separation, the unification, a quality of wholeness. But initially, in conjunction with seeing these three poisons, greed, hatred, delusion, we also begin to wake up to what are called the three characteristics. The three characteristics are anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A, which is impermanence. It's the fluidity, the, Andrea spoke of it last night a bit, as the unreliability of experience. Why is it unreliable? Because it keeps changing. You maybe have started to catch on to this at least a little bit, right? 
Think about what happened and where you were in your mind, your heart, your body this morning and this afternoon. And now where did all that go? Water under the bridge, as it were, things keep moving. This is impermanence. And because we want to hold on, because we do this grasping and pushing away, we suffer. This is the second characteristic of dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. I like the word dukkha because it kind of sounds like what it is, dukkha, right? There are many definitions of the word dukkha, but my favorite is it's a wheel out of round, so, you know, if you have a wheel that's in round, you, you cruise across wherever you're trying to go smoothly. And if your wheel is out of round, it's sort of like dukkha, dukkha, <laughs> right? And sometimes the suffering of dukkha is big. There's extreme grief or rage or pain. And sometimes it's very subtle. There's mild irritation or melancholy or dissatisfaction. It's all dukkha. And finally, we see the truth that even I, this habitual sense of I, me, and mine that I carry around, that I hold to, that too is not permanent. It's more of a river. It is uh, sometimes described as there is no such thing as a separate, solid self doesn't mean there's no you. It just means that you are more like a river than an ice cube. That's what it's like, right? There's a beautiful phrase in the Theravadan teaching of uh, waking up as entering the stream. And entering the stream is often really understood as this entering the stream of the lineage of all the warm heart to warm heart, warm hand to warm hand to 2,600 years from the Buddha down to, to you, to me, to us, that these teachings have been passed, that that is as we enter the practice, as we begin to see clearly, as we begin to wake up to things as they are, we're, we're entering that lineage or entering that stream. Why? Because we're seeing the same thing they saw. We're seeing the same truth, the same reality, the same insight. We're seeing things as they are. But I like to say that it's not just about entering the stream, that there's a more kind of kinesthetic, visceral experience of this, which is more like becoming the stream. That as we begin to wake up, as we begin to sink into the immediacy of our direct experience to stop thinking about me and actually dropping into the felt person, which is a field of sensation and emotion and thought. As I drop in here, I start to feel myself as more fluid. I start to feel myself as more flexible. I am no longer stuck in my ice cube tray. That's what we do. That's what our suffering is. We freeze frame our experience. I say that 
bad, that good, that me. <laughs> Which is part of why we give you this instruction that Andrea spoke to so beautifully this morning about relax, allow. Because how are you going to get out of your ice cube tray? Somebody could come and bang it and you go flying across the room and it's really uncomfortable. Or you could melt. You could soften. Everything you need is already here. Water is water. It's just a matter of allowing yourself to expand beyond the walls of whatever it was that you thought was possible for you. There's a beautiful um, opening line of a book called The Famished Road. The book is by a prize-winning author named Ben Okri, who's a Nigerian writer. And here's the opening line or lines of his book. He says, in the beginning, there was a river. Then the river was paved over and became a road. And the road branched out and covered everything. And because the road was once a river, it was always hungry. When we live in that tight box of our firmly held ideas and beliefs and ideas, did I already say ideas? Ideas and beliefs and opinions. When we live in that little ice cube tray, we get really hungry because some part of us knows there's more. We know we're not a road, we're a river. And what does that mean? It means we're alive, right? A river is an alive thing. This is why when we bow to a statue of Buddha, we don't want to get confused. We don't want to think, oh, that's freedom. No, that's not freedom. That's a statue. A statue is meant to help you remember, remember that aliveness, that fullness in you that's sitting in your seat, whether it's pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's boring. And you know what? <laughs> if you sit here long enough, it will be all of the above at some point, right? So one more piece, which is my uh, current favorite understanding or really way of talking about what awakening is, what it means to take refuge in the Buddha or what it is that we're taking refuge in. There it is. Um, and that's to understand Suzuki Roshi, who said this line, this beautiful line about uh, seeing things as it is, 
he also is reputed to have said something like, enlightenment is not an experience. What? What is it? Everything for us is an experience. Every moment is an experience. So then what is it? That always stops me pretty much. And I think I understand something. <laughs> oh. So another way of thinking about what it means to wake up or the experience of waking up is that it is a shift in perspective. It's when we're going along, there's an image from Zen in which we're all walking around in the world, looking at the sky through a straw. And suddenly, whoosh, our view changes. Our perspective changes. We always have a perspective. You may like some perspectives better than others. And I'm not talking about true or false or good or bad. We all have a perspective and all of our perspectives, no matter how wise, no matter how kind, no matter how awake they are, are limited. It's built into the system. You can only see what you can see, which is why we need each other. Because it's only together that we get to see the whole sky. This is, um, this idea of having a limited perspective is really bad news for those of us who are trying to get it right, because it means we're going to keep failing, but it's really good news for those of us who are awake enough to start to get in a sense that like, Oh, maybe it's not about being right. Maybe it's not about getting there. Maybe there's no there, there, maybe this is an opportunity to enter a path that's alive where there can be ongoing learning and ongoing appreciation for ourselves, for each other, for the world, an ongoing opening of the heart, opening of the mind. Here's a poem that is a kind of little bit of a humorous description of the experience of this shift in perspective. <laughs> this is from Billy Collins and it's called another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. <laughs> he says the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark. He barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on when their way out. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows of the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. And I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still 
barking. Sitting there in the oboe section, barking. His eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to that famous barking dog solo. That endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. So it's possible for us that something that may come in as irritating, as annoying, as unpleasant can turn. And that turning is not because the dog stops barking or the knee stops hurting or the paint. It's because we shift. It's because we open our circle of sky and are able to hold a wider perspective, a wider reality. There's a beautiful phrase in uh, Japanese. In the Zen tradition, when you sew a robe, when you uh, are going to be ordained, you take a large piece of cloth and you cut it into many small pieces, and then you stitch it back together with teeny little stitches. And with each stitch, you say, recite to yourself, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Buddha. In Japanese, the words are namu, kie, k-i-e, butsu, which is Buddha. Butsu, namu kie butsu. And the translation of those words means something like, or the spirit of it is something like, I throw myself into the house of the Buddha. So we give ourselves fully. We devote ourselves fully to this possibility of ongoing awakening, of ongoing freedom and peace. And bit by bit, Stitch by stitch, we take what we may, what may come in feeling fractured, dismembered, cranky, sad, confused, in pain. And by our care, our devotion, our wholehearted attention that we give to each moment of our pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experience that we stitch ourselves back into wholeness because enlightenment awakening isn't going to make you turn you into somebody else <laughs> with somebody else's problems. You may think, yo, I would rather have her problems than, than mine, but probably not. We all have enough. Some of you may feel like you have too much. It often feels that way. And the question is, can we use those gritty moments, those painful moments, those beautiful moments, those peaceful moments as grist for cultivating our capacity to be with all of it, all of what's here? <clears throat> from pieces 
of shredded cloth, we make holy cloth. And the holiness doesn't come from some kind of uh, consecration. It comes from the fact that we pour in our heartfelt devotion, that we bring our full attention, our full care, all of our love to our life. And that's how we find holiness, not on a mountaintop somewhere, not in a philosophy or a theory, but right here, right in your seat, in you, as you, moment by moment. I'll close with one more piece. This is one of my favorite mm, quotes in all of the Dharma. And it is, um, it's from Dogen Zenji, who was a 13th century uh, Japanese poet, philosopher, monk, who is the founder of the Soto Zen tradition. He was Suzuki Roshi's teacher's 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 teacher way back. And he describes this shift in perspective and what's possible for us when we are willing to admit that no matter how much we know, no matter how much we see, no matter how much we understand, that there's more. And that that more is not uh, a problem. It doesn't mean that we are uh, incomplete. It means that the world is so full. And that as we sit here, we have this opportunity to keep being with our difficulty and opening to our beauty. This is Dogen. When you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions. So imagine you're out in the middle of the ocean and there's no land and you look around when you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. Remember this? That's how it looks for us. But, he says, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace it is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as your eye of practice can see at that time. All things are like this. So at the end of a first day, we're not into the evening quite yet. At the end of a long first day of practice, it may not feel like a palace or a jewel. It may not feel uh, open and spacious. But to know that the practice of being with, of devoting yourself to being present to exactly what's here, 
that this has the possibility of opening you and me and all of us to something we might not be able to imagine from here. So taking refuge in Buddha is uh, trusting that and incrementally bit by bit becoming to know it for ourselves as true as we transform grit into gold as we discover the freedom that sits right at the center of each moment. Let's sit for a few moments together. <laughs> 